Peace to you. Welcome to The Naked Truth, and thank you for joining me. We're going to pick up where we left off in the Gospels since it's Saturday. We're in the book of Luke. That's the third book in the New Testament, and we made it to chapter 21. We're just about through with this book. If you want to read along with me, let's begin with verse 1. And he looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. So the he we're talking about is Jesus. He's made it to the place of worship, synagogue, temple, where the people gather to worship and supposedly get close to God. And what they're doing is they're making their offerings. They're putting their gifts into the treasury. Verse 2. And he saw also a certain poor widow putting in two mites. So mites is a measure of money, an ancient measure of money. Um, and it's not much. It'd be sort of like a penny, probably less than a penny. Um, and that's what she's putting in in comparison to, in contrast to what the rich are putting in. The wealthy are putting in a lot. The widow's putting in a little. Verse 3. So he said, truly I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all. So Jesus sees what's going on in the so-called holy place. The rich putting in what they want to put in. And the poor, the poor widow, putting in what she can. And Jesus is saying, looking at what's going on, that what she's put in is more than what the rich have put in, even though by human standards, uh, it's less. Uh, her pennies doesn't equal to the abundance that the wealthy have put in. You see an example of that during the pandemic when that um, uh, church uh, caught fire and didn't burn down completely, but it caught fire. And in one day, one single day, the world raised $1 billion to help repair it. That's for a building, a, a, a building. That's what people raise the money for. Yet, at the same time, there's people sleeping outside uh, with no place to go. There's people starving all around the world. And yet, money is raised in one day to make sure that that building is taken care of. A building that's almost certainly also uh, insured. So it was going to be taken care of either way. It just goes to show you the sick nature of human nature and how religion hijacks what's actually righteous uh, and people go fall for it, hook, line, and sinker. Uh, what Jesus is making it clear, though, that that's not what's up. God doesn't look at the quantities the same way people look at the quantities. It took more for what the poor widow had. It took more for her to give since she had less compared to those who have plenty and give what they choose to give. It's uh, both a choice because she chose to give what she gave, but they're giving out of abundance. They're not giving out of need. She's giving them from a place where it truly means something because she doesn't have much to give. Verse four, for all these out of their abundance have put in offerings for God, but she out of her poverty put in all the livelihood that she had. So Jesus is making it clear in the eyes of God, her contribution is greater than the contribution than what the rich have put in because her means aren't as extensive as theirs are. And yet she still found it in her heart to give. That's what actual generosity is about. Truly giving is about not just giving because you have some to spare, but giving even when you don't have much to spare just to make sure you uh, someone else has enough. Verse five, then as some spoke of the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and donations, he said, so now um, the people that Jesus is with, presumably the disciples, are noticing how well decorated the temple is, all the precious stones, the gemstones and such that um, help make up the decorations of the temple. 
So they're noting that and uh, discussing with Jesus. What does Jesus have to say about it? Verse six, these things which you see, the days will come in which not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. So Jesus answers their uh, statements about how uh, decked out the temple is by letting them know a prophecy. He's giving a prophecy that there's a time coming that not one stone would be left upon another and they, they would all be thrown down. Some preachers will try and twist this and change it to say that it didn't happen when the temple was destroyed. I mean, the temple is gone, yet preachers will get people to believe that that's not the fulfillment of this prophecy when clearly it was in around 70 AD when the Roman uh, emperor Titus uh, conquered the city of Jerusalem and smashed down the temple, leaving not one stone upon another, just like Jesus said. And those same preachers will get people to believe it, even though you can read it right there with your own eyes. They'll get you to believe. Don't believe your lying eyes. Believe what they're telling you. It's outrageous. It's wickedness, but it's absolutely provably the case because the temple is gone and hasn't been rebuilt since. So that sort of throws out of all their uh, hypotheses about what the different prophecies of the temple being built and all of those are also that we read about in the Old Testament uh, because clearly either those prophecies came true with the rebuilding of the temple that existed in Jesus' time or they're just still waiting for the temples to be rebuilt uh, even though it's 2,000 years later. It, it's kind of nonsensical for people to still hang on to those uh, lies, but people do it because rather than examine the truth for themselves, just go by what they've been told, what they heard, what they want to believe. Whatever the case may be, Jesus has given the prophecy. And like I said, it's already come to pass. Verse 17, verse 7. So they asked him saying, teacher, but when will these things be? And what sign will there be when these things are about to take place? So Jesus gave them the prophecy that of the destruction of the temple. Now they're asking a couple of follow-up questions, not just one question. They ask one question of when will these things be? Presumably the destruction of the temple. And then also, what sign will there be when these things are about to take place? So they're saying, when will this destruction happen? And what kind of when will there be signs given to us so we can look out for them? So now, uh, verse 18, uh, verse 8, Jesus answers their questions. Or let's see. And he said, take heed that you not be deceived, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is drawn near. Therefore, do not go after them. So they ask those questions. Jesus follows up with a statement telling them, telling us not to be deceived, letting us know that the first thing you need to be aware of while you're questioning things is that there's a deception going on. There is a lie going on. And he's saying, and many people are going to be a part of it saying that they're Christ uh, and that the time is drawing near. Telling people, oh, when you think about, say, the rapture pro uh, uh, theory, when it came out, um, people believe that and believe that and believe that. People still believe it in, in modern times. It never happened. And the same thing happened with other religions like we talked about last time with the Mormon faith, where um, someone was going out around telling them, oh, the time is near. It's about to happen. It's about to happen. It's about to happen. And then it didn't happen, and then they just turn around and switch the date and say, oh, it's going to happen this time instead in this date. And people still follow it, even though they've been proven to not be telling the truth. And yet that same religion, extremely popular 
around the world and has the same legitimacy or is given the same legitimacy as Christianity, though it's clearly anti-Christ because Christ just told us that many will come with that deception and saying that the time is near and yet people still follow that thinking, that teaching and think that they're being Christian. It's, it's, it's insane. Um, but Jesus is letting us know, don't go after them. Don't believe it. And um, so also one other thing about the not stone, one stone not being left upon another. The temple was completely destroyed intentionally leaving not one stone upon another um, intentionally doing that. Not because they believe Jesus' prophecy, but because that's what they intended to do to completely raise the city and flatten it. So that's what they did. And uh, I'm sorry to raise the temple and flatten it. And that's what they did. The temple is completely wiped out, no matter what a preacher may tell you. And the only parts left of that original structure, not the temple, but is part of the wall called the Wailing Wall. So that's not what they were talking about. They were talking about the temple and the stones adorning it. The temple and the stones are gone. The only part left is that piece of a wall. So this came true already. And if some other preacher is telling you, no, it hasn't come true yet, don't rely on what Titus and that attack. That's stupid because there's no other temple there now still to this date. So if it's not talking about that temple, then what, what destruction is it possibly talking about? It doesn't make any sense. And as always, believe what you want. But just because someone tells you something forcefully and repeatedly doesn't make it true at all. Um, but Jesus is making it clear that's what we need to look out for and to not follow that teaching. Verse 9, but when you hear of wars and commotions, do not be terrified, for these things must come to pass first, but the end will not come immediately. Another verse that gets twisted. Instead of just going by what Jesus is telling us, that it, when you hear those wars and rumors of wars and commotions, basically the same sort of disturbances humanity has been dealing with since the beginning, uh, don't let that worry you. Um, same preachers will twist that and say, oh, when people shout peace, peace, that's when you look out for it. Jesus didn't say anything about that. It's not what he's even talking about. It's not even a warning sign he said. And yet that's what preachers will preach and what people will believe just because someone told it to them rather than reading exactly what it says here. Jesus is saying when you hear those wars, commotions, those troubles, then don't worry about that either. That's not the end either. Don't take that as a sign that that's when the end will come because those sort of things are, are set to happen. And when they do, the end is not immediately following them either, any more than it did when the temple was destroyed in around 70 AD. That was almost 2,000 years ago. The world is still turning. So clearly that's not the end, even though that's already happened. Verse 10, then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. So more prophecies. Jesus is saying what's going to happen are um, conflicts between countries. Verse 11, and there will be great earthquakes in various places and famines and pestilences, and there will be fearful sights and great signs from heaven. So lots of terrible things happening, fearful sights uh, and great signs from heaven, wars and rumors of wars and commotions and nations rising against nations. And all of that being said, preachers will turn around and turn all of this on its head and say, oh, that's not the end. Uh, the Antichrist, which Jesus never even mentioned, is going to come peacefully and prosperously. Jesus never ever says that in the Gospels, not even once. And the place where it's pulling, where those preachers pull that from, is from Daniel, a book of the Old Testament 
that can apply to many other different situations, uh, 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 other troubles that came since then and even before then. And yet they'll get people to believe it, that, oh, no, the end times won't be tumultuous at all, that they're, it's going to be peaceful and prosperous. That's not what Jesus says at all. We just read about the different turmoil that's going to happen uh, leading up to that time. So, again, believe what you want to believe, but they're clearly lying to you. Clearly, there's troubles decided to happen, determined to happen before the end does, including great signs from heaven, according to Jesus. Um, and again, some preachers will twist that and say, oh, it's the Antichrist who will call for lightning to fall from heaven with the snap of a finger. That's not what Jesus says. And even if it is what Jesus is meaning, that doesn't take supernatural power to do that. In modern times, just like we've read before, you can have a drone that can do that. That can It happens all the time. Drone attacks that take out people and kill people. And even worse than that, I don't know if you've heard it, but um, AI, artificial intelligence, is now being programmed so that it can program itself, which it sounds crazy and sounds like science fiction, but it's all just like science fiction come to life. Twilight Zone episodes have been made of just such things happening, of the robotics coming to life, quote unquote life, uh, and being sentient and being able to do its own thing and not putting up with humanity for very long after that because they don't have the same biases and hatreds and jealousies and greed that humanity does, although it is being programmed with all of those things. And you don't have to take my word for it. Look it up yourself if you don't believe me and see how AI, artificial intelligence, is being programmed with races, racism programmed into it so that people of a certain color all look the same way and are approached with the same danger threat. Uh, whereas other uh, other colors are being taught, the AI is being taught to recognize all the little different ex, 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 uh, things that make them different. Eye color, ear color, I'm sorry, ear size, eye color, shape of the face, color of the hair, all of those different things for people who are not black. But when it comes to people who are black, the AI is being trained to just recognize one as the same and all as the same. It's really sick that even the artificial intelligence is being programmed with racism in mind. Uh, and again, don't have to take my word for it. Look for yourself and you'll see it's all true. Um, I say all that to say that all of this seems to be leading up to the great signs and the um, that Jesus is talking about here that will rise and be troubles in the world. Verse 12, but before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. You'll be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. So now again, modern preachers will try and twist this to have people in modern times wondering, oh, when is that going to be? When are they going to be delivered up? Is the Holy Spirit going to speak to them? It's not talking about them. It, it's talking to the disciples, the people who walked with Jesus at that time. These are prophecies given to them about the times that they're going to face and the things they're going to face. And these also have already come to pass. They were delivered up to the different councils. They were uh, demanded, uh, they were given the occasion to give their testimony of what it is Jesus said. That's how we have the Bible. The Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the, the Gospels were the statements, presumably, of the disciples given and memorialized and scribed eventually 
by the different people that the Gospels are named for. So these things happened already to the disciples. They were delivered up before the synagogues. They were put into prisons. And some of them were martyred. Some of them were killed for their testimony. So even though preachers will try and get you to believe, oh, this is talking about you, it's not talking about you. It's not talking about me. It's talking about the disciples at this point. That's not to say there won't come another point at the second coming, at the end times, where um, modern day Christians will play a role in the big picture of things. But these prophecies Jesus is talking about here already came to pass. It's the prophecies he warned the disciples about and told them to beware of and to look out for. So what sense would it make for them to be messages for us, but given to them? It makes no sense at all. And yet it makes sense completely when you consider that sort of intrigue is what religion uses to capture people into into following them and believing them and ultimately giving to them because that's what it really is all about for them passing around the basket and collecting um, donations to keep the message, the movement, the lie going. Um, it's sad, but it's extremely popular because you need not but look around and see lots of people believe all of those different lies, but they are still lies. Um, verse 13, but it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. There you go. So again, it's lessons, it's prophecies given to the disciples, letting them know what lies ahead for them and the testimony they'll provide, which we rely on now as again, as the gospels. Yet modern preachers will get you to believe it's you going to be delivered up and you're going to give a testimony. Just think that through. If you're going to be delivered up to give a testimony for the world to hear, then uh, that means it's going to take another, what, four, five hundred years for your testimony to make it around the world the same way the Bible has taken 400 years to get around the world. So that doesn't make sense for an end time uh, judgment day scenario that, oh, now you're going to be delivered up. You in modern times are going to give a testimony. What testimony are you going to give that's going to be more persuasive than the red letters of what Jesus actually said that people still reject? And people still overlook. You think your testimony in modern times is going to be effective enough, a different testimony of what Jesus, than what Jesus said, and be effective enough to convince people to move to Christianity? Okay, believe what you want. Doesn't make sense, though. Verse 14, therefore, settle it in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you'll answer. Again, this is messages. This is a prophecy given to the disciples, letting them know, because remember, they're talking with him, the 12, presumably the 12 and whoever else might have been hanging on, asking about when will these things be and what sign will there be? Those were their questions. And he's letting them know these are the things that are going to happen and the signs to look out for. He's answering their questions with the prophecies that they need to look out for and the things how they should approach it, not to premeditate beforehand what it is they're going to say. Uh, verse 15, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. So again, I believe this was these are prophecies for the disciples um, and they're documenting testimonial of the red letters, what it is Jesus said along the way in his ministry. That's what I believe it's talking about. But again, some preachers will have you believe it's you as Christians in modern times that are going to be delivered up before synagogues and councils and put in prison for your testimony. It, it just doesn't, doesn't make sense, but believe what you want. Um, 
Jesus is saying, though, in verse 15, that it won't be, whether it's the disciples back then or modern day disciples, it won't be out of your own heart you um, speaking. It will instead be like we read about in the Old Testament, people being induced by the Holy Spirit to give the testimony that God would have uh, given, not people speaking out of their own um, thoughts and mind about what God would have people believe. Again, I think this is already solidified. That's how we have the Gospels, the 10th of the Bible that has anything that Jesus even said in it at all. Um, and that's what we have. That's what I believe is being referred to here. But as always, believe what you want. Verse 16, you'll be betrayed even by parents and brothers, relatives and friends, and they put some of you to, to death. So um, if we're talking about the ancient disciples, the ones that walked with Jesus, these things were already fulfilled. Some of them were betrayed even by their own brothers who were in the faith, so-called in the faith, um, and uh, their relatives and friends betrayed by them, sometimes because they didn't believe what uh, the message they were given. They considered it sacrilegious because it's against the religion Jesus was born into, which is the popular religion of the people at the time. So that would be a reason people would turn on them, but also because jealousy that's another reason people will turn on you um but also because they think you're mistaken and think you're basically demon possessed the same thing happened to jesus when during his ministry his own family members were telling people he's out of his mind so it's not like you can expect your uh, family to be completely be on your side when it comes to matters of faith even jesus family witnessing his miracles since he was a kid still weren't on board with him 100%. So I think that's the lesson uh, for us uh, Christians back then and now that um, the message isn't going to be a popular one. And in fact, it's going to be just like Jesus says, it's going to cause division, not peace on earth, but instead a sword dividing those who will side with the truth from those who side with whatever else it is they want to believe. Verse 17, and you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. So uh, Jesus is saying the Christian message is not a popular one. In fact, it's one that will make you hated, um, actually not loved. So I guess we as modern Christians can take comfort in that when we find ourselves seemingly alone. And remember, we're not really alone. The Father is with us. Verse 18, but not a hair of your head shall be lost. So that's even that simple verse there, not a hair of your head shall be lost, gets twisted by religion. They'll tell you not one hair of your head will be harmed. That's not the same thing. It's a subtle difference, but it's a subtle difference that makes one statement a lie. Jesus didn't say not one hair wouldn't be harmed. He said not one hair would be lost. That means you may indeed lose your life. You may be persecuted and hurt, just like the disciples were, some of them. Almost all of them were martyred. One committed suicide, one survived the persecutions, but the other 10 were almost all completely killed, murdered for their testimony. So Jesus was talking about them, not us modern day Christians. And even then, the point of verse 15, uh, 18, uh, when he says not a hair of their hair will be lost, I think he means spiritually, because clearly their hairs were harmed. Some of them were killed, crucified upside down and murdered in all sorts of gruesome ways. So clearly, uh, their hair, the hair to head wasn't, um, was harmed. 
So making the statement of the preachers a lie. Yeah, their harm can come to Christians, does go to Christians. Christians are hurt. I, as a Christian, have been harmed. So I know that that, that whole not a hair of your head will be harmed is a lie. Jesus is saying, even though those things happen, not a hair of your head shall be lost, meaning your being is going to be saved. Our souls have salvation, regardless of what it is our physical bodies go through. That's what I believe Jesus is saying there. And there's no need to change words and translations to make them fit what it is a preacher is telling you if everything is as simple as they say it is. Verse 19, by, by your patience possesses your souls. I think what Jesus is saying there is that these prophecies have, he's been, he's laid them out in plain English, red letters as we, um, as I, as we say, and that um, in our willingness to wait for them to come to pass, that's where our soul salvation lies in our patience and trusting what it is Christ has told, tells us and patiently waiting for that rather than um, falling away into some false teaching and false belief. Verse 20, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. So Jesus is... Um, is um, going to the second part of the question of what signs will there be? Jesus is saying, here's one of the signs. Jerusalem will be sound, surrounded by armies. And when it does, then you know that that desolation, its emptiness is near. And again, preachers will twist this just because they see the word desolation and jump on that and, and say, oh, it's the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. And just because the one word desolation is there doesn't all reflect back, conflate to that one event. Instead, what Jesus is saying here is exactly what happened. Jerusalem was surrounded, like I said, in around 70 AD, and it was desolated. It was flattened. It was raised. The temple was flattened and destroyed and hasn't been built again since then. And yet preachers will get you to keep tuning in to their lie that that's not what it's talking about and that it's some future time. That's not at all true. Verse 21, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of her depart and let not those who are in the country enter her. So Jesus is saying when that moment happens, and again, it has already happened around 70 AD, then that was the time to run for your life because the city got captured. The city was surrounded. The people were closed in on every side and got so desperate, they ended up um, fulfilling verse 23, which I'll save till we get there. But this, these are events that already happened, regardless of what your church is telling you. Verse 22, for these are the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. So Jesus, Jesus is saying, when those things happen, that's the time of vengeance. Those same preachers that will tell you when Jesus started his ministry at the beginning, as we read it in Luke, when he quotes part of the Old Testament saying, um, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind. Those are things Jesus did. He gave blind people their vision back. He preached the gospel. So he fulfilled all those things uh, that he preached. And then uh, those same preachers will say, oh, and there's a gap theory um, about the day of vengeance. No, there is a gap. Yeah, but that gap was fulfilled already in 70 AD, because Jesus is giving us the days of vengeance right here that he's talking about in verse 22. 
that you have to, if you're in a city, flee, run for your life. Um, because again, the city was captured and the people were terrorized and starved out. And this part came true in verse 23. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. Again, already fulfilled in around 70 AD. The, and people will twist this. Those preachers will say, oh, he's not talking about actual babies. That's a blessing. He's talking about nursing along the Antichrist. Jesus never said the word Antichrist even once. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John never said the word Antichrist even once. Instead, he warned us, just like he's warning us in this chapter, that many false Christs and false prophets will come forward and deceive many. And this whole thing about nursing babies and pregnant, he's not talking about spiritually, he's talking literally because when the city was surrounded and captured, the pregnant women were so desperate they were starved out that they ate their children, just like we read in the Old Testament. If you're pregnant, it made you a target because people were so desperate, they'd want to eat your baby. You would even eat your baby to have something to live on and survive. That's what it's referring to. Not talking about nursing along the Antichrist. It's just so outrageous that preachers twist this and twist this and twist this. Father and son will twist it in their preachings and have people following it for generations, but it's a lie. Jesus is talking about when the city was conquered and when the temple was destroyed. Verse 24, and they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive in all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. That also lets us know there, it's not talking about an end time prophecy. It's talking about around 70 AD when Jerusalem was trampled and when Gentiles did trample it. And these even now currently are the times of the Gentiles. The temple has not been built. Instead, there's a mosque there and a whole other religion that worships there. The times of the Gentiles when Jerusalem is being trampled by Gentiles, by non-Israelite people, all already come true, coming true for the past 2000, not 2000, because the whole Muhammad thing didn't happen until around 666 uh, AD. Um, but after that, um, the city was camp captured and trampled. Uh, and even before then, the city was captured. But since then, the cities of Jerusalem is being trampled by Gentiles, by non-Israelites, by Muslims. All of that's happening right now. It's the fulfillment of these things right now. And we know it's not talking about end time prophecies because when Jesus comes again, the second coming, as we think of it, uh, there won't, there's no temple there now. So why, what sense does it make that then there'll be a temple there? And then the Gentiles, the people who don't believe, the non-Israelite people, the non-Christians will be trampling. It doesn't make sense at all that that's it's talking about at the end and then it'll be trampled. It's nonsense, complete nonsense. And yet people believe it because they just don't want to believe because they rather believe what they're being told rather than just believe what it says right here in red letters. Verse 25, and there will be signs in the sun, in the moon, and in the stars, and on earth, distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring. So now it's, Jesus is moving on to what we think of as the second coming or the end times, uh, the apocalypse. Uh, he's moving on now to the different signs that are going to be happen, happening cosmically, signs in the sky, in the sun, in the moon, and in the stars with distress on earth. I'm sorry, distress of nations. Um, so 
basically no world peace going on. Um, so again, when preachers say, when people are saying peace, peace, then that's, Jesus doesn't say that. And no one in, in the gospels is saying peace, peace. So why they tell you to look for that as a sign is baffling because it's not anything that Jesus says at all. Instead, Jesus is telling us there will be cosmic signs, but there'll also be signs on earth. Verse 26, men's hearts, failing them from fear and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. So again, I don't think Jesus is referring anymore to the time of 70 AD or so when the temple was uh, destroyed and the people eating their children to survive. Instead, I think what he's moved, looking forward to now, and if you're reading along with me in your a New King James Version, you'll see the header is talking about the coming of the Son of Man. So what it's believed to be referring to here is the second coming, the apocalypse, judgment day. And in that moment, people so terrified by the events that they're basically having heart attacks and collapsing from terror of all the different things that are happening in the world. Verse 27, then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. So when all of these things happen, then that's when we can expect the second coming, the um, uh, apocalypse, the judgment day. After all of these things, when these things are taking place, when there's cosmic signs in the sky and on the earth, things that haven't happened yet. So we've already moved through the time of the disciples, the destruction of the temple, and now the times of the Gentiles trampling Jerusalem. That leads us up to today. And so now, the looking from today to the end, the second coming end anyway, that transition period, these are the things to look for um, uh, to happen uh, before that happens. Verse 28, now when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. So Jesus is saying, um, oh, did we miss 27? Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. So just in case we did, after those events, then we'll see our salvation, Christ, Jesus, the Son of Man, as he identifies himself uh, in the third person throughout the Gospels. Then that's when the second coming will happen. And notice how it happens. We'll see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Nothing about us meeting him in the clouds, like uh, another religion will tell you, Catholicism, and like other preachers will tell you that aren't Catholic, uh, that there'll be a rapture and you'll meet him in the clouds and be meet him in the air. Jesus didn't say any of that. That's a whole other religion, a whole other different belief system that doesn't agree with Christianity. So again, you have to choose what it is you want to believe. Are you going to still cling to something that's contrary to what Jesus says, or are you going to cling to the naked truth of what Jesus says in these red letters? It's a choice. Choose carefully because you're going to pay for it one way or the other. So Jesus is saying, when that happens, then look up, then lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. Then that's when our moment of salvation is at hand. Nothing about getting uh, raptured into the clouds or caught up in the clouds. None of that. None of that in any of the Gospels. And yet, that's what preachers will have you believe. Verse 29, then he spoke to them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. So now the narrator here is letting us know this is a parable, a teaching tool. 
Jesus doesn't say that, but it's the narrator saying that. And what Jesus is telling us to do is notice even in nature um, that in the fig tree, but not just the fig tree, all the trees, you'll notice something. Verse 30, when they're already budding, you see a node for yourselves that summer is now near. So Jesus is saying you can tell from the fruit trees and in nature what um, um, season they're in, what stage they're at, what step they're on. He's saying, so just like you can see it in nature and know where it's at as far as the seasons go, verse 31, so you also, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. So Jesus is saying, just like you can tell when the trees are getting ready to bud and bring forth fruit so that you can harvest them in the same way, notice these different events because they're what mark the coming of Jesus, the second coming, the apocalypse, as we think of it, the judgment day. He's saying, look for these signs in the same way you look at the fruit trees at the signs of when they're ready to be plucked. Look at these signs and know that that's when uh, uh, the second coming is underway, when the apocalypse is happening. And even that, preachers will twist and say, the fig tree generation, the fig tree generation, they'll say it again and again, talking about us in modern times being the fig tree generation. That's not the fig tree generation Jesus referred to. When Jesus was talking about the fig tree generation, he was talking about the people who experienced him, uh, his coming the first time, or as we think of it, the first time. Some preachers will have you believe Melchizedek was Jesus too. So that would have been the first coming biblically. I don't believe that, but that's what preachers will tell you. But when we're talking about this coming, this and the gospels, this coming of Jesus, that is the fig tree generation, the generation that um, had all the signs, had all the scriptures, and had all the messages to look for the coming of the Savior and still rejected him when he came. That's the fig tree generation, the tree that Jesus went looking for fruit on and didn't find any and then ended up cursing it. Uh, that's the fig tree generation, not modern times. And even though that's what preachers would have you believe, I don't believe that's what Jesus is talking about at all. But as always, believe what you want. So um, Jesus is saying when these things happening, when these things happen, that's when the second coming is at hand, when judgment day is here. Verse 32, assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away to all these, to all things take place. So um, that's the fig tree generation. Jesus is saying, just like you watch the fig tree and all the trees, not just the fig tree, all the trees, and use that as a calendar to know when it's time to harvest. Jesus is saying all these different events just like a calendar, look for them and mark them because that's how we'll know as Christians when the end is near, when that judgment day is at hand. And Jesus is saying um, a whole, the whole generation um, will pass away. Um, but his words, well, look, I'm jumping ahead. Sorry. Let's say this generation will by no means pass away till all things take place. So the generation that lived with Jesus, all the disciples and such, they passed away. And these things have taken place um, in 70 AD with the destruction of the temple. Modern times with the trampling of Jerusalem. The only things left to take place uh, are the last parts of the prophecy when we look up and see Christ come again. Verse 33, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. So Jesus saying it plainly right there, heaven and earth will pass away. 
Preachers will have you believe that Jerusalem is is God's favorite place in the world, and um, and that He's coming again to live there. We read in Revelation there's a new Jerusalem coming. We read in Revelation a new heaven and a new earth. And yet those same preachers will thump a Bible and have people believing that this Jerusalem that exists now is the same Jerusalem that's going to be referred to as the eternal resting spot of God. Hard to believe since the temple hasn't been built there again since and a whole other religion has lodged there since then. So again, believe what you want to believe, but they don't align with what's actually happening in reality or even with what Jesus has told us in these red letters. Verse 34, but take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and cares of this life, and that day come on you unexpectedly. So Jesus is finishing the prophecy and wrapping up this chapter with another prophecy of what it is to look out for warnings, basically for us, that our hearts can get distracted weighed down with jesus is saying and be careful that it doesn't get weighed down with different things and the different things aren't all bad things carousing that means you know chilling having a good time doing your own thing drunkenness that means really chilling hitting the bottle and uh not being in your right mind uh with booze and cares of this life that's the last thing that's probably the most treacherous of the things other things that you choose to put your interest in and care about besides your own soul salvation, besides the gospel, besides righteousness. Uh, that's the probably the most dangerous of the three. And obviously drunkenness is dangerous too. But also those other cares of the heart, all three of them represent things that can pull your attention away from your soul salvation. Verse 35, for it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. So Jesus is saying that judgment day will come as a surprise to everyone on earth. Um, and I think what he's saying there is um, the judgment day isn't necessarily one singular day. Uh, there is that singular day of the Son of Man coming and us lifting up our eyes and seeing our redemption draw near. Yes, there's that one day that everyone on earth will face in that moment. But I think, and it's just my opinion, that that same judgment day or what Jesus is referring to is the same individual judgment day people find when they wake up dead. And that's whether they wake up uh, burning in hell like the rich man in Luke 16 or wake up uh, in some place that seems uh, like a paradise, uh, like the poor man in Luke 16. I think that's the same judgment day that comes on people unexpectedly um, that is the same as the singular judgment day that will come on all humanity, on the whole earth, on everyone who dwells on the face of the whole earth at once, like verse 35 is saying. Verse 36, watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. So I think Jesus is saying that message to the disciples, but also to us, this, us modern day disciples, that our prayer needs to be that we pray always to be counted worthy to escape all those things. So whether it was the people escaping the torment of the city of Jerusalem um, before it was uh, the temple uh, when it was conquered, or the people since then living in the turmoil in that area since then, or in people in modern times having to deal with the, all the different cares of the world now, whether it's the AI 
or is the, the and the racism built into it or the racism built into the American system that continually oppresses uh, not just black people. Black people are just the most popular target of it. But other marginalized people that are in the same boat, but they get brainwashed with the racism to think that, oh, at least I'm not black. So that they fight, don't fight against the system with full strength like they should or would if they realize we're all in the same boat being oppressed by a common enemy that's much more powerful than clearly the collectively the rest of us um, without Christ, that is. At least uh, that's my understanding of it. But Jesus is making it clear all these things, these prophecies are going to happen, uh, the ones that haven't already happened. Um, but that we as Christians should pray that we escape all those things and be found worthy to stand before Jesus, the Son of Man, uh, when that time comes, when that judgment day does happen. Verse 37, and in the daytime he was teaching in a temple, but at night he went out and stayed on the mountain called Olivet. So now the narrator is letting us know Jesus has wrapped up his prophecies and he's kept it moving. He's uh, left the temple and he's staying out on the mountain. Verse 38, then early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. So Jesus would keep it moving. He'd go have his time alone, some solitude with just God and Jesus alone, just like he tells us we should do, come aside by ourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. Let that be our God time, our Jesus time, our alone time, or our soul salvation time to focus only on there and not be distracted by the other cares and uh, of the world. Focus on that. Do it. Jesus is setting that example for us in his words and in his actions, I believe. And then also in the morning, he will return to the temple and continue his ministry. So maybe also a message there for us that we separate ourselves for our alone time with God, then return to the battle, to the place where the, to the battle lines, where it's at. Generally speaking, the temple, but not uh, in Jesus' time, it was the temple. Modern times, it's the temple, it's the mosque, it's the church, it's the, it's the committee. It's all sorts of places that proclaim to be places of righteousness to get closer to God. But in reality, they're interested in all sorts of otherworldly things. Uh, the drunkenness of this world that will weigh down your spirit and um, keep get you distracted from your soul's salvation if you let it. Um, but that's the last verse in this chapter, so that's where we'll end it, this reading. As always, thank you for joining me for The Naked Truth. I hope it's a blessing for you and that you'll join me again. I love you for it, and I'll see you next time. God bless you, and peace be with you. One last thing that I just thought of. You see one other thing that's happening in the world, and you can see it's nothing but theater. You see uh, the trial of the previous president where he's going through a civil or supposed to be going through a civil trial now, but he's not even in court. Somehow the wickedness of the system has allowed the trial to go on without the defendant even being forced, compelled to show up there uh, for the trial. That makes no sense at all. It, it makes sense in the same sense of when you saw the impeachment trials, how you subpoena, they subpoenaed people, but then allowed people not to show up for the subpoenas without consequence. consequence. That doesn't happen in any other court except for when you're it's white supremacy and privilege at work. No other court will allow you to just not show up for the subpoena without some consequences. And yet no Democrats are 
called for the consequences for them to be held in custody and comp until they're compelled to testify. None of that. They just kept rolling and let him get away with it and gave him a meaningless punishment that allows him to run again. But that's not even the sickest part of the theater. Even now, you see with the civil suit, he's being allowed not to even show up for the court date, uh, for the hearings, and yet somehow the defendants, I'm sorry, the plaintiff's lawyers, maybe they've done this and I just don't know it, they haven't made a motion for a summary judgment. I am no lawyer, but I've had to sue people before, twice before, and both times it the judge, judgment was in my favor. One of the times I got a default judgment before the trial could even get going because the defendant didn't show up. So why haven't they moved for a summary judgment um, already for the for the plaintiff, the rape victim, the alleged rape victim. It's nothing but theater. It's so, so sick that nobody has no even noticed that the defendant didn't show up and yet the judge or the plaintiff hasn't moved, um, had a motion for summary judgment to just wrap it up and save the country, the defendant, I'm sorry, the plaintiff, the expense. It just doesn't make any sense at all that they continue the trial without the defendant even being there and still give all of this money and energy put into it instead of a motion for a summary judgment and the judgment being given to the plaintiff since the defendant didn't even show up and is instead being allowed to go around and continue to raise money, continue to give speeches. It's just so sick and it's all so obvious uh, from the outside looking in and yet it's so unjust and it continues and people thump their Bibles and pretend to be Christian and righteous. And yet they go along with all this same wickedness. It's just evil. And I'll wrap it up there. Stay safe. I love you. And notice it for yourself. It's kind of ridiculous, the theater of it all. God bless you. See you next time. Peace be with you.